Amen. Let's go to our great God in prayer as we turn to his word. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come this morning to worship you, we recognize that we are a people not identified by nationality firstly, but identified by our relationship in Jesus Christ. So today as we celebrate the 4th of July in the United States of America, we want to recognize that while you have placed us as citizens in this country and in this place, that we are firstly citizens of heaven. And this morning as we are gathered to honor your name, the name that's mentioned in this epistle, we recognize that Jesus is the name above every name, the name by which every person will bow in eternity. And God, this morning, we bow in reverent worship before our Savior God, Jesus Christ, recognizing that he has forgiven us our sins. He has taken away our iniquities and removed them as far as the east is from the west. And today we celebrate not merely a national holiday, but we celebrate the freedom that we've been given in Jesus. And God, help us to cling to this freedom with all our might. Help us to cling to it, persevering in the truth, and help us to magnify this name and this message to all who would hear it and who would listen. So God, as we worship this morning, we pray that you would be magnified in our relationships. Help us as we relate to one another, both as families and as friends, that we would see your glory marked throughout our lives. God, the fact that you would bring us into relationships that we did not choose ourselves are an indicator of your greatness and our need for you. They show us where we should depend on you, and they show us how you bless us. So God, this morning, I pray that your glory would be revealed, and it would be revealed clearly as we seek to apply the truth of the gospel in our relationships. Guide us as we go through the proceedings of this time together, that it would not simply be a rote tradition, that we would not be gathered here because it's the right thing to do, but that we'd be gathered here because of the glory of God that is at stake and the glory of God that is being revealed in the world through your church. And we pray this morning that above all things that it will happen on the 4th of July, that the glory of God would be evident in our lives and our relationships in such a way that people recognize that we are first Christians, and then we were anything else. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, today we do celebrate the 4th of July, or Independence Day for America. But some of you may not be aware, on July 1st, Canadians celebrated Canada Day. In Scotland, they celebrate St. Andrew's Day in November. And in other countries, they celebrate their own national holidays on different days. And while that is okay to do. We should never confuse God for country because God is preeminent over country. It is at the Tower of Babel that these things were divided and languages were created and men were divided. But it is through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that all things are being brought back together. In fact, it is through the gospel message of Christianity that languages have been learned and translated so that others may know of the great name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And our goal is not to take American democracy around the world, but our goal is to take the name of Jesus Christ to all the nations and to all people that would hear and receive the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So as we celebrate today, we will certainly have fun related to the 4th of July as we have our picnic after the service today. We'll certainly have fun as families. Perhaps later today, you may even have the opportunity to shoot off some fireworks and be that neighbor that keeps everybody else up tonight. But more than that, I want us to be a people that are marked by Jesus and his message, that we would celebrate the gospel and the unity that we have in Christ above the unity we have in anything else. This morning, I want you to consider 3 John as Akeem read it for us. It's in this short letter that the Apostle John is writing to believers that he loves very dearly and he wants to maintain gospel-centered relationships. And in fact, we will see in this letter it is through working at their relationships that God will receive glory through their relationships. You see, the believers in the first century were not much different than we are today. They were people who related to one another and even in the best relationships had difficulties and misunderstandings because relationships under the curse of sin require hard work. They also involve many times misunderstandings, miscommunications, and conflict. Things that none of us like, but even in your best relationship, you have those elements that make that relationship difficult. Even with people whom you love and trust, there are challenges. Several years ago, my wife and I and our kids had the privilege to live in Scotland, where I pastored a church named Stonehaven Baptist. And while I was there, there were just incredible things that God did through our time there that he did in our lives, and he worked through the Scottish people and especially our church members to help us see Jesus more clearly. And in one of those, there were often miscommunications and misunderstandings because of our being a common people divided by a common language, to quote Winston Churchill. We all spoke English, but we meant different things by the English words we sometimes used. And fortunately, I was in a group of people as I preached that were rooting for me and wanted to learn and wanted me to teach them. And I'll never forget my deacons who would come to me after services and give me encouraging words and also some critical feedback. I remember after my first couple months of preaching, one of my deacons came to me and said, it seems like you're, you're struggling for your words sometimes, like we can see your mind working. And they said, just relax. You're among people who love you and people who care for you and people who appreciate what you have to say. Just say what you're going to say. Well, this deacon shared that because I had also received feedback from my deacons just helpfully along the way telling me the meaning of different words. One of them that stood out is at the end of most worship services, after a benediction, it was my habit to say, you're dismissed. And that was just to me a verbal cue to say, I'm done saying what I've got to say. Now you can get up and go. Well, as I said that the first couple times, I remember people looking down, people looking at each other, and me wondering, why are they reacting this way? Well, one of the deacons came to me and said, look, you know we love you. You know that we trust you, but we do have to give you some feedback. At the end of the service, you said you're dismissed, and we think we know what you meant, that you were saying we were free to leave, 
But what we heard because of the way we use the word dismiss is this. We heard you say, I'm finished with you. Get out of my presence. And I thought, whoa, that is not what I was saying at all. That is not my intention. <laughs> if that were the case, they certainly would, have been, would not have come back to church the following Sunday. But they said, in our context, that's what an angry boss says to an employee that they're firing. They're saying, you're dismissed. So please, at the end of your benediction, don't bring that into it. Just simply say, you're free to go or you're free to leave. But don't say you're dismissed. There were others that I said, such as in giving the elements of communion, because I've always been in a tradition of faith where we use non-alcoholic grape juice to call the element of the grape juice, juice. And after I gave communion a couple Sundays, which we did it every Sunday, one of these deacons came to me and said, I think I know what you mean when you're saying juice. You're referring to the wine. And he said, now I know we're not using alcoholic beverage here. This is not wine in the technical sense. But when you say juice, we think of kids' Kool-Aid. And that is not appropriate for communion. And I said, I agree with you. That is definitely not appropriate for communion. So I'll call it wine. So for the rest of my time in Scotland, I celebrated communion by serving the wine and the bread. Words have significance. Words sometimes make relationships complicated and make it difficult for us to relate to each other because we're saying something that we understand that we're trying to get across and other people may be hearing something completely different. We may be trying to be polite as I was trying to do and they may have heard an offense that they took, not even personally, but they took to be an offense against God. Well, this morning as we look into the letter of 3 John, we have a series of relationships that are recorded here for us. Relationships between John the Apostle who is writing this letter and some of the believers at the local church that he loved and cared for. And those believers are Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. And in each of these men, we see different aspects of relationship that we must work at and different ways that that reveals the glory of God as we would strive at our relationships. But as you think about your own relationships, and you'll see in this passage, think about some of the questions that naturally arise when people are trying to connect with one another. Have you ever felt misunderstood by someone like I did in Scotland? Have you ever felt hurt by what someone else said about you? Have you ever disagreed about a decision that was made, perhaps even a decision made without your input? Have you ever felt taken advantage of by someone else? Have you ever felt ignored or left out? All of us should be able to answer those questions, absolutely. They could even trigger specific incidents or memories. There could even be something brewing right now that you're saying, yes, I'm actually having that problem at home or at work. Well, each of those questions reveal that there is ongoing struggle and tension in all of our relationships. Tim Lane and Paul Tripp have observed this. They've said the health and maturity of relationships are not measured by an absence of problems, but by the way the inevitable problems are handled. So did you catch that? The absence of problems is not the goal. The goal is to deal with those problems in a way that would honor Christ. 
Lane and Tripp continue. They say this, every painful thing that we experience in relationships is meant to remind us of our need for Jesus. And every good thing we experience is meant to be a metaphor of what we can only find in Christ. I say amen and amen to that. That every part of our relationships, even the good things of our relationships, all of it is to point us to Christ. As John is writing to Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius, he is writing to men that he loves deeply and cares about. And he is wanting them to work through some of the problems that they're facing in their local church. And those problems can only be handled under the light of the gospel, or as he'll call it here, the truth. And as we work our way through this passage this morning, I want us to understand that God receives glory when we cultivate healthy relationships. God receives glory when we cultivate healthy relationships. This short letter, the shortest in the New Testament, is an example of relationships at work in the local church. Third John was written to help us understand how we should resolve difficulties and how we should work together in our relationships. And why is this? It's not simply a self-help manual that was written in the first century that they went and found, but this is a manual to point them to God and to help them see the urgency and the importance of working out their relationships for the sake of the name, he says here in this passage. Well, if God receives glory when we cultivate healthy relationships, it's important that we approach relationships in a way that honors God, that puts him above all. And we see that in the first portion of, of Third John, where we'll see that truth is what shapes healthy relationships. So that's my first point this morning, that truth shapes healthy relationships. As John is writing, he writes here, he says, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Healthy people are those who love according to the truth. When John writes to Gaius, he says here, dear friend, three times. And these two words, dear friend, convey an incredible amount of meaning. This is not a formal formula that he's simply saying, dear Gaius, like we might say, dear sirs or dear ma'am or dear whomever in a formal email that we may send someone. But this is a term of affection, a term of great love for his brother. And as he is writing, he says it four times in this epistle, meaning that he has an incredible attachment to Gaius, that love has been given to John for Gaius, and it is the bond that unites them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice that he says here, whom I love in the truth. This isn't simply John saying, Gaius, who is just like me a guy with a similar personality and background, and when we met the first time, we just clicked, and the rest is history. We've been the best of friends ever since then. No, he says here that we have an affection because of our love of the truth of the gospel. John and Gaius are united in a bond of love that is defined and informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is only the gospel that could connect different people from different backgrounds with different values and experiences to have one Lord and one Savior in Jesus Christ. 
Both John and Gaius are men who had committed their lives to the gospel of Christ for the salvation of their souls. Hear what he said in 1 John chapter 4, where he defined this true love that's mentioned here. In 1 John 4, 9, John wrote this. He said, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Very clearly, John believes that the ultimate love that any of us can experience is the love that God demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ. That he would send his perfect son who knew no sin to save people like us who know only sin. That is those of us, all of us, who have broken God's righteous standards, who have broken his laws, that God loved us anyway and sent Jesus to forgive us for all the times that we have broken his righteous rules. And in that breaking and of rebelling against God, God still made a way to turn us from rebellious slaves who loved and relished our sins to become adopted sons and daughters. People who loved God because God first loved us is what he said there in 1 John 4. John and Gaius in this third John epistle are both men who had come under the love of Christ. They have come to understand their own sinfulness, their own unworthiness before the eternal God, and they have confessed Christ as their Savior. And John is reminding his dear brother, his great friend, saying, I love you because you love the truth, and we live in the truth. So as truth shapes healthy relationships, it's shaped by love, And it's also shaped by the way we live. It's shaped by the way we live. Look at verse number three where it says, it gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. John was encouraged by Gaius, not simply because of a common confession that they shared in the gospel, but he was also encouraged by Gaius because of their common lifestyle according to the gospel. And here he is saying, I have great joy that this is a blessing to know that you are persevering in this gospel message. That it wasn't simply a prayer that you prayed and then you walked away from faith, but that this is a confession of your heart that has changed your life. John had received reports of Gaius' faithfulness, and Gaius was living according to the gospel. He had faith in the gospel, and he was faithful to Jesus, and this produced great joy in his friend. As we think about this, it is a command and an instruction for us to walk in the truth as well, that it's not sufficient for us to simply know the gospel or to have prayed a prayer when we were a child and then abandoned faith in the church but that we must be people who are marked by this message through and through, that we're growing in the gospel day by day. 
And how do we do that? Well, it's not simply in accumulating the knowledge, though we need to know the facts and the information of the gospel, but it's that we would also grow in transformation, that we would be changed by this message, that we would come to understand that if Jesus laid down his life for us, then we must lay down our lives for others. And that comes through in this epistle so clearly. And that leads to the next thing that we see in this healthy set of relationships defined by truth, and that is that healthy people also labor according to the truth. As John is writing to his brother, he's saying, the greatest joy in my life is to know that people I shared the gospel with are persevering in that same message. And now we have an opportunity to not simply persevere as individuals, but we have the opportunity to partner together as the church of believers. Look at verse number five. He says, dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on, a way, on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. As John is writing to Gaius, he's reminding his brother that they have a partnership commitment in the gospel, that this is not just for solo, lone ranger Christians, but this is a message that brings people together, forming us into a family, which he calls here brothers and sisters, the children of God. Did you notice that this family is created from strangers? It's significant that in verse number five, he says these brothers and sisters were originally people that were unfamiliar to you, people that you did not know. The gospel has now brought you together, and apparently he had great love for them. So what is he talking about here precisely? Well, in the first century, the Christians traveled from church to church as they had the opportunity to do so, both for the mission of advancing the gospel but also for some cases, their livelihoods as they worked and their commerce moved them. And they would seek each other out and they would encourage one another with news and with sharing from their other churches. And they would gladly receive one another. And how did they receive them? In a manner that honors God, he says. The fact that they would show hospitality to complete strangers would demonstrate that they had the supernatural work of God in their hearts and in their lives. This could have been risky business to receive unknown people into your home. You'll remember, after all, that when Jesus himself was crucified, that there were false accusations brought against him, and then there would be false accusations brought against Paul, and there would be false accusations brought against many Christians. And sometimes those accusations were investigated or brought about by people like Judas Iscariot who would betray trust and who were there not under the best motives but they were gathering information to turn on their friends. So when John was encouraging Gaius he was saying you are demonstrating the power of the gospel by receiving these people you don't even know trusting that they too have given their lives to the truth and God is demonstrating love through all of you. Well, why would they do that? They would do that because of the name of Jesus. That's what he's referring to in verse number seven. When he says, it was for the sake of the name 
that they went out receiving no help from the pagans. Who are they that went out? These are uh, some of the representatives that worked with John and perhaps the other apostles, and they were sent out as messengers of the good news of Jesus, not depending on the, the unsaved, non-believing people to provide their needs, but for depending on the church. And why is that? For the sake of the name. What does this mean? Well, it means that because of Jesus and the work that he had done, that they would undertake the work of spreading his fame to all who would listen and receive it. This is another way of saying for the glory of God, that these brothers and sisters were going out sharing the good news of Jesus, not because it was comfortable or convenient or because it made them a celebrity, but they were sharing the good news of Jesus because of the greatness of our God. And they wanted him to be glorified through all the peoples and all the nations. These that are receiving this message, including Gaius himself, were likely non-Jewish believers who had received the benefits of the gospel as it had expanded from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond. And they were doing all of this so that God would be glorified. God was being glorified as they declared the gospel of Jesus, but he was also being glorified in the ways that they were relating to each other across any differences that they may have had. And they were working together so that other people could know the truth. The specific way that John says they were working together here is in showing hospitality. They were receiving other people into their home and they were allowing them to stay as long as it took to advance the gospel. Most of us never open our home to anyone else. In the South, we don't have hospitality as much as we used to call it entertaining. When we'd have people over to our house to show them our house and to show them what good cooks we were and what a great party we could host. But hospitality is different. Hospitality is getting, inviting someone into your life and getting involved with them. Hospitality is letting them spend the night if they need to spend the night. Hospitality is sending them on their way, not in a way of get out of here, you're dismissed. It's sending them on a way so that they can be encouraged and do the things and the work that God has called them to do. Crystal and I have had the privilege of traveling extensively as a part of our ministry over the years, and we've stayed in a lot of different places, including people's homes. And two stand out to me. One, we were with a family over in Augusta several years ago, and this was a family with seven children living in a three-bedroom house. Let's just say it was a bit cozy in their house. And when we came in, I was the guest speaker to talk about missions and so forth. And this family had volunteered to host our family, which are just four of us, Crystal and I and Miles and Madeline, and they gladly received us into our home. And they, from the moment we pulled in their driveway, were out greeting us, talking to us, bringing in our luggage, and just folding us in to write ev everything that they were doing. And when it came time to set us up for our sleeping accommodation, the mom and dad said, we're giving you our master bedroom. It's the best bedroom in the house. It's large, it's private, it has its own bathroom. And we're gonna sleep with our kids. We have two bedrooms for them. We've got one for the boys and one for the girls and we're just gonna split up and, and stay with our kids. We want you guys to be as comfortable as possible. That about made me wanna cry because I thought you're probably not gonna get any sleep with all your kids. And these were kids all under the ages of 10. They were young and rambunctious and energetic. <clears throat> 
And yet they showed this kind of hospitality. Why? For the sake of the name. They wanted God to be glorified. They wanted me to get rest so that when I preached at their church that I would be able to speak with power and with passion. And what an impact that made on me. One other example is on a trip to Scotland without Crystal and the kids before I moved there. I flew in. And if you've ever done transatlantic flighting or just inter- flying or international travel, you know how exhausting it can be. And on this particular trip, I was traveling with another pastor friend. And when we got to our destination on a Saturday afternoon, we were just exhausted. We'd been up for over 20-some hours, and flying is not always comfortable. And when we got where we were going, we met our pastor friend in Scotland, and he took us to one of his church members' home a lady who is named Gina Miller, and I name her because even telling this story may make me cry. We go into Gina's two-bedroom flat in Scotland, and she was a lovely host. She was an elderly woman who was nearing 80 years old and a perfect Scottish woman in the sense that she had dressed as if Queen Elizabeth were arriving at her home that day, wearing her pearls and her dress, and she just looked amazing. And she received... Matthew and I into her home, and she showed us our accommodation. She said, Matthew, you'll be in this room, and this is how this will work for you. Nathan, you're going to be in this room, and this is how it will work for you, and I've prepared a light supper for you to eat, and then you can go to bed. I know you must be extremely exhausted, so that's what we did. The next morning when we got up, she had already prepared a full Scottish breakfast for us, which was incredible, and again, she was dressed as if the queen were visiting her. She sat us down at her dining room table and she served us this lovely meal. But both of us, this before I'm going to cry, both of us noticed how bloodshot her eyes were. And we thought, we talked later, we thought, I wonder if she had a health problem or something was going on with that. Well, what we discovered, because she was too modest to tell us, is her pastor told us later that day that she had slept on the couch that night. And when we found that out, we went to her at church and we said, Gina, why did you sleep on the couch? And she said, because you're the ministers of God and I'm just a lowly church member. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, she was the minister of God. She gave up her comfort for one night and perhaps more given her disposition and the work of the gospel in her so that the work of the gospel could advance because Matthew was preaching Sunday morning at their church and I was preaching that Sunday night and she cared more for our work as ministers of the gospel than for her comfort. That was hospitality. And there's no doubt that Gaius demonstrated similar hospitality even when others pushed back against it because we see in verse number nine where John had written to the church before and perhaps with Demetrius who is mentioned in verse number 12 being sent there that they had been repulsed and rejected by this person named Diotrephes. That while Gaius was being commended for a healthy set of relationships defined by truth, we also see in this passage a person who's letting his pride break relationships. So Diotrephes, who we'll look at next, is a person who is letting pride break relationships. He was not willing to open his home to strangers. 
in the name of Jesus. He was not willing to set aside his comfort or conveniences for the advance of Christ. Instead, he was all about advancing himself. Look at verse number nine again. It says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. Diotrephes' love for preeminence in the church had caused him to reject relationships with John and other believers. The charge that he loves to be first suggests that he loved power. And from this elder's point of view, he delighted in throwing his weight around, ignoring John's letters and rejecting John's partners in the gospel. His failure to show hospitality to John and his co-workers demonstrated that his selfish pride and his selfish pride was antithetical to the gospel. This person, Diotrephes, was allowing pride to break relationships because he wanted to be preeminent in the church. His pride was preventing the unity of Christian fellowship, and it was undermining the gospel itself. John had written in his gospel, chapter 3, verse 30, that Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. And Diotrephes was a person who was saying, I must increase, everyone else will decrease. Now, he may not have used those exact words, but his actions were speaking louder than his words because he was holding John and his partners at bay, keeping them out of the church. Broken people are people who cherish their pride, who every offense is an offense against them, who sees every person as a threat to them and their position and their authority, and who works very diligently to posture themselves on the top of the heap, as it were. And how do they do that? Well, it says here in verse number 10, they do it by misrepresenting the truth. John says, when I come to you, I'm gonna call attention to Diotrephes for what he's doing because he is spreading malicious lies and nonsense about us. And I'm going to confront him to his face, he says here, because he says at the end of the letter, I have many more things to say to you, but I will say them to you face to face. Diotrephes was speaking lies about John and about his co-workers, and he was probably also spreading lies about Gaius, who was trying and was doing the right thing. What kind of lies? Well, there's no doubt that he attacked their character, their motives, and their actions. You ever met someone like this who always has a doubt about other people, always likes to raise a question, well, what did they really mean by that? Can we really trust them? Like, are you sure they're up to good? Why didn't they include us in this conversation? Why was that decision made without my input? You know, what's really going on here? And then fill in the blank. The spirit of Diotrephes is alive today, and it's alive not only in our churches at Crabapple First Baptist and Grace Church, it's alive in each of us individually. We all love to be first. We all love to be recognized. We're all sort of miffed when we're not recognized. And we all naturally, with our sinful selfishness, will posture and position by questioning other people. Well, you know how they got that position. Well, you know what they did. And all we're doing is trying to cut them down to lift ourselves up. And Diotrephes is doing that to an apostle, to John, who has written scripture, who has written a gospel, a man who walked with Jesus. And he's saying, you know, John, he's no longer on our team. 
We ought to be careful about this guy. I mean, after all, he's not here with us. There's a reason he's not here with us. And again, he probably filled in those blanks with no good, which John calls utter nonsense. And why is this? Because Diotrephes wanted to elevate himself above everyone else. But what's even worse, it says in verse number 10, he wasn't satisfied with that. He wasn't satisfied in simply posturing and putting other people down, but he also wanted to bully other people in the church. It says he refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so, and he puts them out of the church. If you were on the wrong side of Diotrephes, you would not be welcome in this church. Instead of being the church of Jesus Christ, this had become the church of Diotrephes because he was the center of it, and he had made himself that. He didn't show hospitality to Christian believers, and his ungracious attitude had escalated into hostile actions. Can you imagine being told, if you're friends with this person, then you're no friend of mine and you don't have any place in our church? And you're going, but that's a brother, that's a sister who, I know that person, they've walked with me, that's a person who's spoken truth into my life. Why are you saying this about them and why are you threatening me with that? Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that bullies and the spirit of Diotrephes are alive in our hearts and alive in our church. Several years ago in a church that I pastored, I had a group of deacons who were not united. They were divided for many different reasons. And one of the deacons, in fact, he was the chairman of the deacons in one of our meetings, said to me and the others in the room, he said, I can't believe this. I have just a mind to quit. And he was yelling when he said it, and he said other things as well. And I calmly looked at him, and I said, I accept your resignation. And he lost the plot. If he was already angry, he just went 10 times angrier. I mean, it was just an ugly situation. He sort of dug the hole deeper for himself. And he said, literally one of his statements to me was, I can't believe as a pastor you would say that to me. I said, brother, you're the one who said you wanted to quit. And I'm taking your resignation seriously. Well, we did. I followed up with that meeting and we literally um, took his position because he gave it to us, as it were. And he was upset. He was very mad at us. Well, a few months later, I had a church member, actually I had more than one church member, come up to me and say, Nathan, we always knew that that person was a bully and that they forced their way on everyone else. But you're the first person who stood up to him. And we're glad you did because it's brought a new spirit of joy in our church. Now, I can't take credit for that. I wasn't calculated enough to step back and say, if I have a deacon who gets mad and threatens to resign, I'm just going to say, accepted. No, I didn't know what to do in that situation. I just did what the Spirit led. But I'll tell you this, the Spirit did bring us joy in the church that had not been there before. And that is consistent with what's being said in this passage, that John said, I love you, Gaius, in the truth. And that truth is bringing joy to our fellowship. Diotrephes, on the other hand, is a man who loves to be first, and he's bringing disloyalty, he's bringing disunity and discord into our church, and it's creating confusion and creating problems. Well, you might not be as bold as the deacon who resigned in my deacon's meeting, as it were, all those years ago, but it is still easy to have the spirit of Diotrephes. It's still easy to be a person who is divisive, a person who is, 
causing problems in a person who is not focusing on Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that we have to be completely uh, robotic in our relationships in the church. No, we have different people. That's why we have here these different people named Gaius, Diotrephes, and John. We have different personalities, even different preferences, but we're united by a common commitment to the glory of God for the sake of the name, he says here, that we would send people on in a way that is worthy of God. Diotrephes refused to do that, and John confronted him in letter, and I'm sure, given the opportunity, would confront him face to face as well. But the last person that I want you to see in this passage is not Diotrephes. I don't want to end on the negative person, and John didn't either. John wants us to see Demetrius, the third person, the third relationship with John in this, and that in Demetrius we have here a grace that strengthens healthy relationships. So my first point was that truth shapes healthy relationships, and we saw that in Gaius. My second point was that pride distorts broken relationships or breaks relationships, and that was Diotrephes. But my last point is that grace strengthens healthy relationships, and we see that in Demetrius. Notice in verse number 11, it says, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Comparing Diotrephes and Demetrius, Diotrephes was doing what was evil. We could even rightly question whether or not Diotrephes was a Christian because of his disfellowshipping true believers. If we had time to continue in 1 John and 2 John, we would see that John had strong words for false teachers and those who did not show love to the Christian brothers. So here he's reminding them, don't imitate evil. And the evil is, don't imitate a wrong perspective and love toward other people. Instead, imitate what is good. Love one another according to the truth. A love that brings joy. And that is a grace that strengthens healthy relationships, which is what Demetrius did. Look at verse number 12. It says, Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. This brother was characterized by truth, but also grace. It's likely that Demetrius had been one of the individuals sent to carry news from John to this group of believers and Demetrius had been rejected by Diotrephes. And yet John is saying, this brother is not up to no good. He's not pursuing his own agenda. This is a brother who even the truth, the gospel, is marked all over his life. So receive him gladly. In fact, imitate him, because what we are telling you is right. Well, as John concludes the letter, he is telling them, accept Demetrius this Time, and it's possible he came back to them with the epistle of Third John. But John concludes by saying that the relationships in the church are relationships that are deeply personal. He says, verse 13, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings and greet the friends there by name. Just a couple things I want to remark on with this, and that is, the first is, their relationship was so deep and so committed that they couldn't just simply express it in words. 
I don't know about you, but when I was younger, Crystal and I wrote love letters back and forth, and that does date me a little bit. I am a Gen Xer, and that means we were dating before email. So we would write these letters, and I remember so many times writing a letter going, I just can't say how much I love you in this letter. I just need to talk to you. And this was also back in the era when telecom was expensive, and we got those calling cards, 10-10, I wish I had more money, as it were, and we would call each other for one hour a week. That's all a poor guy like me could afford. I had 60 precious minutes, and I remember at the end of most of those conversations saying, I wish we could talk longer because there's so much more that I want to share with you. Well, That's what John is saying here. He said, in spite of the distance between us geographically, in spite of the distance between us in time from one visit to the next, and in spite of the limitations of ink and pen, I have so much more I want to share with you. And why is that? It's because they're friends. And the friends in one group send greetings to the friends of another group, and these friends are all known by name. Catch the connection here between Things such as hospitality being done in a manner that pleases God for the sake of the name, the name of Jesus Christ himself, and friends here who are known to one another by name. Obviously, we don't have a list of everyone on the roll of who these friends were, but the point is they all knew each other personally and deeply. I find it kind of amusing that in our culture it's appropriate to say, I'm terrible at names. I'm so good at remembering all this other stuff, but I just don't remember names. Well, work on it. Nobody's naturally good at names. But think about what that means when you greet someone and they call you by name. That immediately changes your response to that person, and you think, that's a good guy. I like that guy, or that's a great lady. Meanwhile, the other person who's saying, I'm just terrible at names, I don't know anything, but I can tell you the name of my last 10 dogs or whatever other strange detail in your life. Just work at it. It does require work, but it makes such an impact. And why would we do that? Again, for the sake of the one name that matters the most, the name of Jesus Christ. Diotrephes stole God's glory by being self-centered, dishonest, and divisive. He allowed his pride to rule him. Meanwhile, we have Gaius, And we have Demetrius. These brothers glorified God. And how did they do that? They glorified God by loving the truth, by living the truth, and by laboring together according to the truth. So as we respond to this message, let me challenge you to glorify God in your relationships. Glorify God by working through difficult conversations, setting aside your pride, and caring for one another deeply. And watch joy multiply in your life and in the lives of those with whom you are in relationship. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we conclude this morning, there's so much here for us to ponder and to pray over and to apply. God, I ask that we would not look at this passage as simply a historical letter that has nothing to do with us. But instead, help us to look at this letter and see that it has everything to do with us. Because we are to be people marked by the truth of the gospel. That we must submit our lives in repentance and faith to the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And God, help us to move from that confession of faith 
to living out an act of life of faith, building healthy relationships that glorify you. God, as we look around our lives, we see many opportunities where our relationships are struggling, where there's suffering, and where there may just be outright sin. And God, I pray this morning that we would set aside our pride. We would set aside our differences and we would humble ourselves for the sake of the name and that we would honor the gospel by working at our relationships. So bless us this morning as we attempt to do this to your glory and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.